Book the Fourth, Part Three of A Laodiceum by Thomas Hardy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Book the Fourth, Part Three. He dispatched the letter, and half an hour afterwards felt sure that it would mortally offend her. But he had now reached a state of temporary indifference, and could contemplate the loss of such a tantalising property with reasonable calm. In the interim of waiting for a reply, he was one day walking to Markton when, passing Myrtle Villa, he saw Sir William de Stancy ambling about his garden path and examining the crocuses that palisaded its edge. Sir William saw him and asked him to come in. Somerset was in the mood for any diversion from his own affairs, and they seated themselves by the drawing-room fire. "'I'm much alone now,' said Sir William, "'and if the weather were not very mild, so that I can get out into the garden every day, I should feel it a great deal.' "'You allude to your daughter's absence?' "'And my son's. Strange to say, I do not miss her so much as I miss him. She offers to return at any moment.' but I do not wish to deprive her of the advantages of a little foreign travel with her friend. Always, Mr. Somerset, give your spare time to foreign countries, especially those which contrast with your own in topography, language, and art. That's my advice to all young people of your age. Don't waste your money on expensive amusements at home. Practice the strictest economy at home to have the margin for going abroad. Economy, which Sir William had never practised, but to which, after exhausting all other practices, he now raised an altar, as the Athenians did to the unknown god, was a topic likely to prolong itself on the baronet's lips, and Somerset contrived to interrupt him by asking, Captain de Stancy, too, has gone? Has the artillery then left the barracks? No, said Sir William, but my son has made use of his leave in running over to see his sister at Nice current of quiet meditation in Somerset changed to a busy whirl at this reply. That Paula should become indifferent to his existence from a sense of superiority, physical, spiritual or social, was a sufficiently ironical thing. But that she should have relinquished him because of the presence of a rival meant commonplace dreariness to her cruelty. Sir William, noting nothing, continued in the tone of clever childishness which characterised him. It is very singular how the present situation has been led up to by me. Policy, and policy alone, has been the rule of my conduct for many years past. And when I say that I have saved my family by it, I believe time will show that I am within the truth. I hope you don't let your passions outrun your policy, as so many young men are apt to do. Better be poor and politic than rich and headstrong. That's the opinion of an older man. However, I was going to say that it was purely from policy that I allowed a friendship to develop between my daughter and Miss Power, and now events are proving the wisdom of my course. Straws show how the wind blows, and there are little signs that my son, Captain de Stancy, will return to Stancy Castle by the fortunate steps of marrying its owner. I say nothing to either of them, and they say nothing to me, but my wisdom lies in doing nothing to hinder such a consummation, despite inherited prejudices. Somerset had quite time enough to rein himself in during the old gentleman's locution, and the voice in which he answered was so cold and reckless that it did not seem his own. But how will they live happily together when she is a dissenter and a radical and a new light and a neo-Greek and a person of red blood, while Captain de Stancy is the reverse of them all? 
i anticipate no difficulty on that score said the baronet my son's star lies in that direction and like the major he is following it without trifling with his opportunity you have skill in architecture therefore you follow it my son has skill in gallantry and now he is about to exercise it profitably may nobody wish him more harm in that exercise than i do said somerset fervently the stagnant moodiness of several hours which followed his visit to myrtle villa resulted in a resolve to journey over to paula the very next day he now felt perfectly convinced that the inviting of captain de stancy to visit them at nice was a second stage in the scheme of paula's uncle the premature announcement of her marriage having been the first the roundness and neatness of the whole plan could not fail to recommend it to the mind which delighted in putting involved things straight, and such a mind Abner Powers seemed to be. In fact, the felicity, in a politic sense, of pairing the captain with the heiress furnished no little excuse for manoeuvring to bring it about, so long as the manoeuvring fell short of unfairness, which Mr. Powers could scarcely be said to do. The next day was spent in furnishing the builders with such instructions as they might require for a coming week or ten days, and in dropping a short note to Paula, ending as follows. I am coming to see you. Possibly you will refuse me an interview. Never mind, I am coming. Yours, G. Somerset. The morning after that, he was up and away. Between him and Paula stretched nine hundred miles by the line of journey that he found it necessary to adopt, namely, the way of London, in order to inform his father of his movements and to make one or two business calls. The afternoon was passed in attending to these matters, the night in speeding onward, and by the time that nine o'clock sounded next morning through the sunless and leaden air of the English Channel coasts, he had reduced the number of miles on his list by two hundred, and cut off the sea from the impediments between him and Paula. On awakening from a fitful sleep in the grey dawn of the morning following, he looked out upon Lyon, quiet enough now, the citizens unaroused to the daily round of bread-winning, and enveloped in a haze of fog. Six hundred and fifty miles of his journey had been got over. There still intervened two hundred and fifty between him and the end of suspense. When he thought of that, he was disinclined to pause, and pressed on by the same train, which set him down at Marseille at midday. Here yeah, he considered. By going on to Nice that afternoon he would arrive at too late an hour to call upon her the same evening. It would therefore be advisable to sleep in Marseille and proceed the next morning to his journey's end, so as to meet her in a brighter condition than he could boast of today. This he accordingly did, and, leaving Marseille the next morning about eight, found himself at Nice early in the afternoon. Now that he was actually at the centre of his gravitation, he seemed even further away from a feasible meeting with her than in England. While afar off, his presence at Nice had appeared to be the one thing needful for the solution of his trouble. But the very house France seemed now to ask him what right he had there. Unluckily, in writing from England, he had not allowed her time to reply before his departure, so that he did not know what difficulties might lie in the way of her seeing him privately. Before deciding what to do, he walked down the Avenue de la Gare to the promenade between the shore and the Jardin Public, and sat down to think. The hotel which she had given him as her address looked right out upon him and the sea beyond, 
and he rested there with a pleasing hope that her eyes might glance from a window and discover his form. Everything in the scene was sunny and gay. Behind him in the gardens a band was playing. Before him was the sea, the great sea, the historical and original Mediterranean, the sea of innumerable characters in history and legend that arranged themselves before him in a long frieze of memories, so diverse as to include both Aeneas and St Paul. Northern eyes are not prepared on a sudden for the impact of such images of warmth and colour as meet them southward, or for the vigorous light that falls from the sky of this favoured shore. In any other circumstances, the transparency and serenity of the air, the perfume of the sea, the radiant houses, the palms and flowers, would have acted upon Somerset as an enchantment, and wrapped him in a reverie. But at present he only saw and felt these things as through a thick glass which kept out half their atmosphere. At last he made up his mind. He would take up his quarters at her hotel, and catch echoes of her and her people, to learn, somehow, if their attitude towards him as a lover were actually hostile, before formally encountering them. Under this crystalline light, full of gaieties, sentiment, languor, seductiveness, and ready-made romance, the memory of a solitary, unimportant man in the lugubrious north might have faded from her mind. He was only her hard designer. He was an artist, but he had been engaged by her and was not a volunteer and she did not as yet know that he meant to accept no return for his labours, but the pleasure of presenting them to her as a love-offering. So off he went at once towards the imposing building whither his letters had preceded him. Owing to a press of visitors, there was a moment's delay before he could be attended to at the bureau, and he turned to the large staircase that confronted him, momentarily hoping that her figure might descend. Her skirts must indeed have brushed the carpeting of those steps scores of times. He engaged his room, ordered his luggage to be sent for, and finally inquired for the party he sought. They left Nice yesterday, monsieur, replied madame. Was she quite sure? Somerset asked her. Yes, she was quite sure. Two of the hotel carriages had driven them to the station. Did she know where they had gone to? This and other inquiries resulted in the information that they had gone to the hotel at Monte Carlo. But how long they were going to stay there, and whether they were coming back again, was not known. His final question, whether Miss Power had received a letter from England which must have arrived to the day previous, was answered in the affirmative. Somerset's first and a sudden resolve was to follow on after them to the hotel named but he finally decided to make his immediate visits to Monte Carlo only a cautious reconnoitre, returning to Nice to sleep. Accordingly, after an early dinner, he again set forth through the broad Avenue de la Gare, and an hour on the coast railway brought him to the beautiful and sinister little spot to which the power and Stancy party had strayed in common with the rest of the frivolous throng. He assumed that their visit thither would be chiefly one of curiosity, and therefore not prolonged. This proved to be the case in even greater measure than he had anticipated. On inquiry at the hotel, he learnt that they had stayed only one night, leaving a short time before his arrival, though it was believed that some of the party were still in the town. In a state of indecision, Somerset strolled into the gardens of the casino, and looked out upon the sea. 
There it still lay, calm yet lively, on unmixed blue yet variegated, hushed but articulate even to melodiousness. Everything about and around this coast appeared indeed jaunty, tuneful and at ease, reciprocating with heartiness the rays of the splendid sun. Everything except himself. The palms and flowers on the terraces before him were undisturbed by a single cold breath. The marble works of parapets and steps was unsplintered by frosts. The whole was like a conservatory with the sky for its dome. For want of other occupation, he went round towards the public entrance to the casino and ascended the great staircase into the pillared hall. It was possible, after all, that upon leaving the hotel and sending on their luggage, they had taken another turn through the rooms to follow by a later train. With more than curiosity, he scanned first the reading rooms, only, however, to see not a face that he knew. He then crossed the vestibule to the gaming tables. End of Book the Fourth, Part Three.